The voices of the oppressed in the Americas continue to cry out for liberation. From U.S. economic imperialism in the forms of private land concessions and crippling sanctions, from a racist police force that targets unarmed black people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, from a healthcare system that trades the right to life for money, from private, even religious corporations who bust unions and refuse to pay a just living wage, from an America first foreign policy that masquerades as internationalism and leadership, from gender and sexual norms that do harm to women in the LGBTQ community. Indeed, from all forms of institutional violence that militate against the sisterhood and brotherhood of humanity. From all sinful structures that cry to the heavens for justice. Many of us have heard of liberation theology and know that it responds to this oppression. But what is liberation theology? How did it emerge in Latin America? Who are its key players? What do they write about God, the church, and society? And what do their writings have to say to a U.S. audience today that so desperately yearns for liberation at home and abroad? My friends, liberation theology is not dead. Liberation theology is just beginning. Let's explore it together. This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Nchauskas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. I'm so excited, and I hope that you are too. Here's what to expect from today. First, we're going to have an overview of the book on which the podcast is going to be based, Mysterium Liberationis, The Fundamental Concepts of Liberation Theology. Second, an exploration of its first chapter, or at least as much as we can get through today, on the history of liberation theology. And then third, I'll talk about my own history with liberation theology, which includes curious details like stumbling into the presidential campaign for Rigoberta Menchu with Guatemala's National Revolutionary Maiz Party and being mistaken for a CIA agent. And so that's to come. Um, as for the book, here is some background on it. Edited by Ignacio Eacuria and John Sabrino, uh, priests of the Society of Jesus from Spain and then in El Salvador. Uh, published in its first edition in 1990 on the 10th anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Oscar Romero, an archbishop of San Salvador who was shot for accompanying the poor and denouncing military violence in El Salvador during the Civil War. And one of his, Archbishop Romero's most powerful denunciations of violent oppression, you know, came in the days before his assassination. And these words continue to inspire and speak to us today. Quote, in the name of God, in the name of this suffering people whose cry rises to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, stop the repression. End quote. Clear and powerful words from uh, St. Oscar Romero. Uh, and on the 10th anniversary of uh, his martyrdom, this book emerged. Another significant thing about 1990 is that Korea had already died in, by 1990. He died on the 16th of November in 1989, and he and five Jesuit companions of his and two laywomen companions were assassinated by a U.S.-trained military battalion 
Also, like Archbishop Romero, for standing with the poor and denouncing oppression. And in the preface, and about the preface, Sabrino writes, Ignacio and I were supposed to have written this preface, but as we know, he is no longer among us. And also no longer among Sabrino was the contributor, another contributor to the text, uh, Juan Ramon Moreno, uh, also of the Society of Jesus and another martyr of the UCA. And curiously enough, it was in uh, Juan Ramon Moreno's room that I stayed uh, on my first pilgrimage to the UCA, the Central American University in El Salvador. And Jesuit visitors are often housed in the rooms of the martyrs. And it was in that room, which has a window looking out onto the garden where the Jesuit bodies had been displayed execution style on the ground, that I myself recommitted myself to the work of liberation and that in seed form, the idea of this podcast emerged. About Ea Correa and Moreno, uh, Sabrino continues in the preface, quote, None of them could finish all their chapters, though they have now written them with their blood. End quote. And these words reveal something essential about liberation theology. Those who take the side of the oppressed, like Jesus and the prophets before him, will be assassinated and their deaths speak more loudly than words on a page ever could. And as we continue through the preface, we find another powerful statement by Sabrino that comes in the form of a clear and concise declaration. This theology is not a fleeting fashion. And my personal experience confirms this message from Sabrino. Liberation theology is very much so alive in the poor masses who seek emancipation, in sisters, brothers, and priests who pastor their churches to the promised land of freedom, and in countless university professors who continue to teach it, write about it, and adjust it according to the ever-changing demands of the present moment. Now, uh, fair warning, uh, Mysterium Liberationis is a long text, two volumes, about 1,300 pages, and uh, at least in, in the, the two-volume version that I have uh, from the UCA. And, and we won't be able to cover it all, <laughs> I'm sad to say, but we'll definitely skip a few chapters, but we will cover most of it. And I would highly recommend that you would read along with the podcast. So, you know, there's an English version published by Orbis. I would highly recommend it and uh, just snag it, you know, go to the Orbis website, uh, our friends with Mary Knoll and, uh, and, and get it, get the book, get the book. There's nothing like reading along. And, uh, and I will assure you that it will be a transformative experience uh, for you every time that you open up the book, because as we can even just see from the words of Sabrino in the preface, uh, so poignant and so relevant. So get the book. So let's do it. The History of Liberation Theology by Roberto Oliveros of the Society of Jesus. Oliveros begins with a question. Where does liberation theology come from? And he answers in two interrelated ways. First, as a response to the Second Vatican Council, and second, as a reflection on the situation of Latin America. So Vatican II, uh, an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church from 1962 to 1965, 
And it's never bad to recall the beautiful and challenging words that open Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Quote, the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the people of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts, for theirs is a community composed of people. United in Christ, they are led by the Holy Spirit in their journey to the kingdom of their Father, and they have welcomed the news of salvation which is meant for every person. That is why this community realizes that it is truly linked with humanity and its history by the deepest of bonds. End quote. And the seeds of liberation theology are present in this paragraph. The preferential option for the poor, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, Human experience, nothing genuinely human, fails to raise an echo in their hearts. Being spirit-led into the kingdom, led by the Holy Spirit, in their journey to the kingdom of their Father. And history, churches linked with humanity in its history by the deepest of bonds. So we can boil it down to five words, poverty, humanity, spirit, kingdom, history. And these five words are the link between Vatican II and the experience of the Latin American church. And a few paragraphs later in Vatican II, uh, there is offered uh, the similarly famous words in paragraph four. The church has always had the duty of scrutinizing the signs of the times and of interpreting them in the light of the gospel. So when we put these two quotes from Vatican II together in the context of Latin America, uh, some crucial questions emerge. So what do the option for the poor the human experience, the movement of the spirit, the journey to the kingdom, and historical situatedness look like according to the signs of the times in Latin America? What are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the masses of Latin America? And Oliveros answers these questions with sobering facts. Quote, Secular and institutionalized injustice, which has subjected millions and millions of people to inhumane poverty. End quote. The original experience that gave rise to liberation theology is the experience of poverty. And on that subject of poverty in Latin America, there's a story etched into my memory. In 2017, in Honduras, I lived with a fellow Jesuit in formation, Jose. And we would have lively discussions about international politics. And I recall that he, he liked to say that Ronald Reagan was the devil uh, to scandalize U.S. visitors, and with good reason. Anyways, one day he told me a story. When he was an applicant for the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits asked him to serve in a rural parish in the Honduran mountains. And he would pray with people and distribute communion in remote areas. And he once visited the chosa or, or hut of a peasant woman, and it was made of mud and sticks and an aluminum roof. And she was standing in the doorway when he came, and she invited him inside. And to his surprise, there was hardly anything inside the house at all. And there was not even a mattress. And he intuited that she must have slept on the dirt floor, which must have been muddy also at times. And this, you know, my friend Jose is from a middle-class family. And so this, uh, though also a Honduran, was a different experience for him. And the woman noted Jose's body language of shock at the poverty of her living conditions and said to him with desperation, I know I live like an animal. Chilling words, challenging words. Um, what to do with those words? How to respond to those words? And in some ways, 
this woman's chilling words are the answer to the question that Vatican II poses about the griefs and anxieties of the people of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, is that the grief and the anxiety is poverty itself. And her dehumanizing poverty must be the grief and anxiety of the church if the church is to be true to its mission. The church as a whole must be a church in solidarity with the poor for the liberation of the poor. But what is the approach of the church towards this poverty? And we can say that the Latin American church witnessed a shift in its theological stance on poverty in the 20th century. And in the excellent documentary, When the Mountains Tremble, War and Revolution in Guatemala, uh, from 1983 by Newton Thomas Siegel and Pamela Yates, and features uh, Rigoberta Menchu. And in that uh, movie, a priest says that the church used to see poverty as the will of God. It's almost like you have to accept your lot in life. You know, some people are meant to be rich, other people are meant to be poor, and that's the order of the universe. And sometimes we Christians refer to this old approach in terms of an abandonment to divine providence. And now, don't, don't get me wrong, I think there's a good sense of that phrase, and in many ways I practice abandonment to divine providence myself. It's almost like the serenity prayer, you know, what are the things that you can change, uh, change them to make them better, what are the things that you can't change, then you have to accept them humbly. But poverty isn't like that. You can change it. Isn't it, though, to apply to poverty the language of the abandonment to divine providence, to, you know, accept your lot in life, doesn't, doesn't that way of approaching poverty fit the logic of the oppressor, of the rich. To say that a poor oppressed person should humbly accept the present situation as the will of God, I mean, doesn't that way of thinking just preserve the status quo? It certainly does. And, and the priest from the film says that the church, in his experience, no longer thinks this way. The church now knows that God does not want the poor to be poor and the rich to be rich. God wants a, an equalizing change. And along the lines of the priest in the documentary, Oliveros uh, writes in the text that the Liberationist Church discovered that, quote, the cause of poverty is not principally the will of God, but unjust human structures that can be changed to eliminate poverty, end quote. So this is a foundational cosmic shift in the approach of the Latin American Church to poverty, and it was reflected in the Latin American Bishops Conference, which says, and I think I just tweeted this out the other day, the vast gap between the rich and the poor is contrary to the plan of the creator. The vast gap between rich and poor is contrary to the plan of the creator. So the type of economic relationality that produces economic inequality is a human construct, not a divine mandate. So just as it was constructed, it can be deconstructed and reconstructed in service of the common good, not the interests of the wealthy. And I think in these weeks, we're talking about the stock market, right? I, I came across this tweet by Shugay's dad. Don't know who Shugay's dad is, but was very insightful on this particular tweet the other day that speaks to the way that the economy is constructed to serve the rich and reinforce their financial power. Quote, I love the stock market because when it goes up, we get nothing, but when it goes down, we all lose our jobs, except during a pandemic when it goes up and we still lose our jobs, end quote. So indeed, uh, Shugay's dad, thank you for that. 
And it's proper of the neoliberal financial complex to produce gains for capital and losses for labor. And about the effects of neoliberal policy in the 1980s, David Harvey writes in A Brief History of Neoliberalism on page 90, another highly recommended text, quote, while rates of growth were low in the U.S. and the U.K., the standard of living of labor was declining significantly, and the upper classes were beginning to do well. And then he goes on, if the project was to restore class power to the top elites, then neoliberalism had the answer. Here, Harvey and Shuge's dad are uh, talking about neoliberalism, but they're talking about capitalism in general. general. Um, and we can apply capitalism in, in general and kind of think of the Bishop's Conference statement about the vast gap between the rich and the poor. And we can see capitalism as well as its version, neoliberalism, as a historical phenomenon. And human beings are capable of shaping history. So if it's a historical phenomenon and human beings are capable of shaping history because we have free will and we can make things change and things change all the time, then why don't we get rid of it? Uh, St. Augustine writes that, quote, this isn't really a quote, it's just like me paraphrasing. We say that the times are bad, but we are the times. Let us be good and the times will be good. So as we are, so are the times. End paraphrase quote. So <laughs> liberation theology agrees with this sentiment of St. Augustine. If capitalism is not working for the vast majority of humanity, then we should discard it and choose a different system that does work for humanity. We don't have to accept capitalism and its unequal effects as the will of God. God wills equity, and God wants us to take prophetic actions to establish it. And the Latin American church came to this realization in the 1960s and in many ways before, and it was a total paradigm shift. In the next section, Oliveros asks, what does love of God and neighbor mean in Latin America today? So confronted with the situation of poverty, with this opportunity for us to be able to change the reality of poverty, how do we respond to it? What, how do we love in that situation, given the reality of inequality? And once more, Oliveros proposes two models, one problematic and individualistic, and another liberative and structural. And we might call the first one charity and the second one solidarity. We've all heard the expression, give a man a fish and he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime, right? We could say that charity in its crude form is giving a man a fish and charity in its more progressive form is teaching a man to fish. But solidarity asks some deeper questions. Why is the first man hungry to begin with? And why does the second man have a fish to give him to begin with? Why does the first man not know how to fish, but the second man does know how to fish to begin with? So solidarity makes a commitment to addressing the root causes of the problem, the initial inequality of resources and knowledge between the two men in the saying, right? Solidarity makes a commitment, the oppressed first and their privileged allies second, to liberating the oppressed from these deep roots of inequality. For the oppressed, solidarity means, in the words of Oliveros, to love God and neighbor means to leave my path to enter the path of the oppressed and to commit oneself to their cause. And what happens when someone makes this commitment? It leads to suffering. Because the rich do not like it when they lose control. They fight back. 
And so Oliveros turns to the example of St. Oscar Romero, the good shepherd, someone who, from a place of privilege as an archbishop, ended up using his power for the sake of the liberation of the oppressed. The good shepherd, like Jesus, lays down his life for his sheep, and that's what Romero did, and that's what the Uca martyrs did. It, it makes me think of the words of Ignacio Eacaria when he came to the United States, we could call the United States the headquarters of oppression, to deliver an address at the University of Santa Clara. And in the speech, he reflects on the example of Romero and basically predicts his own impending martyrdom. He, he uh, says, quote, But we also have been encouraged by the words of Archbishop Romero, himself so soon to be murdered. It was he who said, while we were burying an assassinated priest, that something would be terribly wrong in our church if no priest lay next to so many of his assassinated brothers and sisters. If the university had not suffered, we would not have performed our duty. In a world where injustice reigns, a university that fights for justice must necessarily be persecuted, end quote. And that is the kind of university about which I dream in the United States. We need universities which are centers of power and privilege, centers of knowledge of fishing, right, we could say, to ally themselves with the struggle of the poor. And when they do so, they will be persecuted. But that's the path that we have to take. And that path will require significant conversion. So it's not shocking that Oliveros turns to the subject of the poor and Christian conversion in the next section. And he uses the example of the rich young man a story that has had a, f a huge influence on my own life before becoming a Jesuit and also as a Jesuit. Uh, many of us are familiar with the story, right? A rich young man wants to know how he can secure eternal life. And Jesus tells him, obey the Ten Commandments. And man replies that he has done so from his youth. And Jesus tells him that if he wants to be perfect, something more must be done. He must sell everything he has, give to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. And he walks away sad because he has many possessions. Kind of in an amusing way, Oliveros uh, writes about the rich young man, quote, that young man was surprised. That answer was not the one his professors had taught him, end quote. And that's right. I think we're, we're accustomed to hearing about gaining eternal life through faith, uh, maybe as a, a free gift from Christ, perhaps through the Ten Commandments, but we're not accustomed to hearing Jesus' power-threatening commandment to sell everything, give to the poor, and drop it all to follow Jesus. So we've been speaking about Oliveros and his understanding of the foundational experience of Latin American liberation theology emerging from Vatican II, and Vatican II speaking about the signs of the times and the signs of the times in Latin America be, being an experience of poverty, and that founding the base of the liberation theology movement. I then wanted to uh, pivot here a little bit and speak about my foundational experience with Latin American liberation theology and share a bit about how this movement became significant in my life. And so in, you know, in 2011, I applied for a grant to do research on the human rights of women and children in Guatemala. I first went to Huehuetenango, to the town of Chantla, 
where I worked with an organization organizing youth in political activism to advocate for their rights in this rural community. And in my, my own uh, little contribution to this group was to organize a literary circle, a tertulia, where we would explore the poetry of Pablo Neruda and other uh, Latin American poets who were speaking about labor struggles in Latin America. And so it was kind of helping people, you know, read and, and interpret and begin to, yeah, kind of find words to express their struggle. In addition to that, I would just kind of observe the, the programs and participate the programs and was blown away by the awesome work of this organization. That was during the week. And on the weekends, I noticed that many of the people who were participating in this organization would be doing things on the weekends. They, you know, at first would, would not really invite me. And uh, we're just like, you know, hang out, babysit the kids, feed the dog, kind of be around and read. And we have so, so much material for you to read. And so I was doing that. And, uh, but then one day, the organizer of this group was like, why don't you come with? On the weekends, we are campaigning and we are campaigning for the National Revolutionary Unity Party, the URNG Maiz, because it's an election year. And our presidential candidate is Rigoberta Menchu. And we are Guatemala's Revolutionary Socialist Party. Growth from the same Revolutionary Socialist Party that was doing the guerrilla warfare in the Guatemalan armed conflict. Do you want to come along and see what we do? And I was like, absolutely. That sounds uh, like a wonderful experience. So I began to go on their campaigns. And wow, in many ways, it was kind of a a juxtaposingly strange situation in that here I was a white man from the United States, young, very unexperienced in, in the ways of the world, much like I am now. And I was campaigning along with this revolutionary socialist movement and learning about what they were doing. And so much so that by the end of the trip, people would say, I bet that you're probably the first white person from the United States who's campaigning with us and, you know, working with us. And I don't think that was true, but they were like, uh, eventually they would start calling me the U.S. socialist. I remember aside from that, other, other people thought that I was maybe infiltrating and was a spy. A occasionally I would be walking down the street and people would shout, see ya, see ya. And at first I was like, you know, you think of Sia now and maybe you think of that wonderful, I don't know whether she's from Australia or uh, New Zealand, but singer, you know, pop singer, uh, Sia. But they weren't talking about her, who maybe didn't even emerge on the musical scene until a few years later. But they were talking about the CIA. That's how you pronounce the CIA. So that, again, led to some very difficult conversations with people in the area. And there was a lot of trust that had to be built. And in fact, it was the first time that they had had in the history of the organization, some, someone from the United States come and volunteer and, and learn and, and research what they were doing. Many of the organizers of this group were Catholic and they would go to church on Sunday. And they offered for me to go with them. And I was Catholic and definitely wanted to have an experience of church in Latin America. And so I went. And I remember that the first first time I had the experience of having a non-white priest. And this was an, an indigenous man who was leading the church in Chantla and would oftentimes incorporate indigenous words into his, his reflections. That to me was was different. It was a different experience. I'd always imagined that, you know, priests are kind of old white men. Here I was finding that the church is not 
the experience of the church in the United States. There's different experiences of the church, and the church is Catholic and, and worldwide. And so I was learning about that. And so also, I began to learn about liberation theology because many of the folks who were with this organization were very familiar with liberation theology, and they knew that I was double majoring in Spanish and religion, and they were like, you absolutely have to look into liberation theology. You would love it. Please do write about it. We want more people in the United States to learn about liberation theology. And so that I did. And during my time at, at Wake Forest, I, uh, I wrote two thesis projects on liberation theology. The first one was on the dialogue between the Vatican and, and a few liberation theologians and the different steps in their dialogue with each other. And then the second one was kind of a play that was uh, based on liberation theology, a more creative project that I did for Spanish. So I returned from Guatemala to the United States, having had these very powerful experiences of the church in Latin America and wanting to like explore my faith much more, wanting to explore politics much more, maybe wanting to organize people at the university. And so all of this kind of came to the fore when I was taking a class on the Gospel of Matthew. I remember that we got to the percopy on the rich young man. I was reading this passage and I thought to myself, <laughs> I am the rich young man. And kind of threatening <laughs> that Jesus says that you should give up everything and give the money to the poor and come and follow me because that's different. Does that really apply to me? I mean, you know, maybe Jesus is being a little bit, a little bit too much here in this passage. And so it was definitely weighing on me and, and swirling around in the interior. As a result of that, a few friends of mine and myself decided we're going to give it a shot. We're going to sell everything, give to the poor and follow Jesus. We, we decided to have kind of like, I would say, a protest slash prayer session slash garage sale in front of the cafeteria of the university. We were selling our things. We were just kind of like camping out there. And I remember one very powerful moment from that hippie phase in my own development, which was very cool, was that I had a Real Madrid jacket. It was fly. I, uh, I loved wearing it. And I thought to myself, this is one of the things I have to give up because it's, it's prized possession and, and uh, we got to let go. So one day, a little girl came up to our garage sale situation and grabbed the jacket and said, can I have this? And I was like, yes, you know, you can have it. <laughs> so she did. And she went away with it skipping and she was so happy. And I was like, not. But <laughs> then what happened was, a few weeks later, I went into the cafeteria and I saw this little girl. This little girl was with her brother and her brother was wearing the jacket. And she had wanted the jacket so that she could give it as a gift to her brother. Oh, if there was ever a moment where someone is slain in the spirit as a Catholic, I was slain in the spirit in that moment because it was, it was, it was just shocking to me, the love happening in that girl and her desire to give the jacket to her brother. And so we could say that those are my first inklings, my commitment to liberation theology in some ways similar to the movement of liberation theology itself in that it, it comes from a lived experience, from my experience of working alongside the oppressed in Latin America and then reflecting on that experience returning to the United States and sitting with that and saying, I've had this experience, I've reflected on it, now what 
to do. Now returning to Oliveros, he goes into a section on the praxis of liberation and the theological method, beginning with rational knowledge and the academic theological method. So question, what is theology? And the traditional definition of St. Anselm is faith-seeking understanding. So we have these kind of two parts here, faith and understanding. So what is faith? And in A Theology of Liberation, Gustavo Gutierrez says that faith and love are inseparable. And he writes, faith operates through love. So faith is a loving, active trust in God and neighbor. And perhaps a better word for faith, if that's the case, is faithfulness. We can think of Abraham, right? He receives two invitations from God, maybe more, but first to travel to a new land and then to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So these two peaks of invitations from God that are just huge, go to a new place and basically establish a a nation. And then, I mean, kind of to throw a wrench in things, the person who's supposed to be your descendant, who's going to establish this great nation, why don't you sacrifice him? So what does faith look like for Abraham in this situation? Uh, Or what does faithfulness look like for Abraham in this situation as a response to God? We could say that faith is made known in the doing. Abraham does these things. So one thing is to say to God, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like, I believe what you're saying. Another thing is to move. And then another thing is to take your son to the top of the hill and, and sacrifice him, right? And so... Faithfulness maybe is a better translation than faith. It's, it's fulfilled in love. It's fulfilled in the doing. And that is what true faith is. And so it's almost like you can't separate faith and action. Uh, according to liberation theologians, according to Gustavo Gutierrez, and according to, I would argue, the Bible itself, right? Faith, hope, and love remain. The greatest of these is love. And so there's priority of action and love is action. You could say that all faith follows this pattern. God speaks and then humanity responds in trust. And we have already seen that God is speaking to Latin America through the signs of the times, which are institutionalized poverty. God is calling Latin America to resist this oppressive reality. And Latin America responds with movements for liberation. So if Latin America's response to God's invitation to liberation is faith, what is then understanding, right? Uh, Faith-seeking understanding. So for so long, understanding meant philosophy. Many early Christians understood their experience of faith through Plato, and many medieval Christians understood their faith through Aristotle. But in the modern era, we know that philosophy no longer has a monopoly on reason, You go to a university today, and and maybe in the past it was philosophy and theology were the options. Um, You learn philosophy, and then maybe you use philosophy as a tool for your theology. But you go to a university today, and you're going to find that there are many disciplines, and all of them have their reason to it, right? All of them are scientific in some way. There are ways of understanding aside from philosophical reasoning. And most notably for liberation theology, there are the social sciences, economics, sociology, psychology, politics, among others. And the problem to which God is asking Latin America to respond in faithful action is social. So it makes sense for theologians to reflect on their problem with the help of the social sciences. So we have this social problem of oppression, 
what rational tool can we use to understand that experience of God calling us in faith to respond to this oppression with liberation? And the social sciences give us such an opportunity for answering, right? And one such tool of notable import in Latin American liberation theology is soon to be explored in, a, in an episode. A little bit down the road here is uh, Marxist social analysis. In a few weeks, we'll find that Enrique Dussel claims that liberation theology is the first theological movement to appropriate Marxism, though from the heart of the Catholic faith and in particular ways, not just wholesale accepting Marxism. And that should not be shocking. Augustine used the pagan philosopher Plato. Aquinas used the pagan philosopher Aristotle. Rahner used the atheist philosopher Heidegger. And so liberation theologians can and should, to their benefit, and in particular ways, use the non-Christian philosopher Karl Marx. In the Jesuits, it's a Latin phrase, and I'm sure it extends beyond the Jesuits, but we often say tantum quantum, tantum quantum, so insofar as. So insofar as, Ignatius says in the spiritual exercises and elsewhere, insofar as it's beneficial, do it, and if not, then don't. And we could use the same thing with Karl Marx and Marxism and its various branches, right? To the extent that they're helpful in the service of theology, then we use them. But there are some ways, obviously, where Marxism is not going to be the best tool of analysis for use in understanding a particular component of the faith. And so we don't use it there. So tantum quantum, as far as it can be used, we use it. As far as it does not need to be used, we don't. From there, Oliveros jumps into the theological method, of Vatican II and how it may differ from the theological method before Vatican II. First, the post-Vatican II church places a greater emphasis on the theological training of all, not just seminarians and priests. Liberation theology takes this opening and, and runs with it. Vladovis Boff has written that liberation theology is not primarily the activity of professional academic theologians, but an interplay of three levels. One, the base communities of lay people, two, their pastors, and three, academic theologians. Vatican II offers an opportunity for the church to double down on its expansion of theological training and theological creativity beyond the priesthood, beyond seminarians, to the church as a whole. And Latin American liberation theology like, says, yes, absolutely. Theology is for all people. Everyone has faith that seeks understanding. So, of course, theology is happening in these different ways. It's not limited to the academic theologians, but also to lay people and their pastors and these th- three things kind of interplaying with each other and speaking to each other. Uh, second, uh, aside from the theological training, Vatican II corrected the misguided emphasis of Trent-era dogmatic theology, Oliveros writes. Before Vatican II, one of the main functions of theology was to explain defined truths and refute errors. And this kind of emerges from the situation of Trent, right? Because Trent was dealing with what the Catholic Church considers to be heresies from Protestant uh, sects that were emerging at that time. And so Catholic Catholic Church at Trent, in a very important enterprise in the history of the church, clarifies many of its teachings that had not been clarified and expresses them as dogma and things are defined. And that was important for that time for the Catholic Church to lay out what it believes and demonstrate what that was and, and help people to understand where the uh, truth is and where the error is to right the ship and clarify things at that time. But 
we can see that that should not be the only task of theology. Theology is not just defining eternal truths and then saying, if you believe against them, then you're wrong. That's certainly one important, very important aspect of theology. Obviously, we, you know, we want to be in the truth and not in error, but it's not the only aspect of theology. Theology must not only draw from eternal truths that have defined dogmatically, but also present realities. And that's what Vatican II says, the signs of the times. And the signs of the times change. So while defined truths are important and essential, they are not the fullness of faith, as faith is lived out in love, and love is a very incarnate and temporal affair in many ways. I would say, you know, in my own experience, sometimes I am speaking to people and think this is definitely something that I will come up against often times enough on Twitter, where a lot of people, their initial response to something is to try to find the error. Where, where is this going against what the Catholic Church has taught or what I think the Catholic Church teaches as opposed to engaging it in a different way? And so I think in, in many ways, this knee-jerk tendency that has been in, ingrained in the church through the, uh, the Trent era uh, dogmatic theology is very much so still prevalent. And again, it's important. We don't want to be in error. But it's not the only way to do theology. And theology in liberation theology uh, relies on dogma, very much so, but also goes beyond dogma or maybe within dogma to interpret the signs of the times. Oliveros continues with theology as critical reflection in liberation praxis. So if, if liberation theology were a play, we could say that it's a play in three acts. The first act is the life of the poor. The second act is theological reflection. And the third act is, once again, the life of the poor. There is this dialectic or hermeneutical or interpretive circle that begins with action, moves to contemplation, and goes back to action. And we could say continues on with contemplation. But there's these kind of three distinct moments. The first moment of action, the second moment of contemplation, the third moment of action. So again, that action like Abraham responding to the invitation to pilgrimage and then the invitation to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then there's a reflection on that that happens. Uh, we could say even that is perhaps the source of that text in the Bible is the Jewish community's reflection on that experience of Abraham. And then there's the third act, which is in light of that original action and in light of that reflection, how are we to act now? This again is the dynamic of liberation theology. There's the experience of the poor. There is a theological reflection on the experience of poor and, the, and oppressed desire for liberation. And then there is a return to the life of the poor having reflected theologically. If theology is best done as praxis, okay, that is this interaction between theory and practice, between contemplation and action, there's no need to limit theology to professors' offices at colleges. We can go beyond the reduction of theology to universities and to books. And that's why Oliveros writes that theology is also songs, prayers, and reflections in popular language. And I think of Carlos Mejia Godoy, one of my favorite singers in the Latin American liberation theology tradition. And I just wanted to quote two lines from his songs that I think are particularly relevant and have spoken to me as I listen to his work. One of them, quote, Mary humbly irons the clothes of the beautiful wife of the landowner, end quote. So here we have 
the Latin American church reading the Bible in the light of the Bible, interpreting the Bible in light of its own reality, which is we see Mary as in the Magnificat, as a woman who is poor and who is seeking the liberation of her people, sees God very much so on the side of the oppressed. And so imagining Mary as someone who is a domestic worker, who's ironing the clothes of the wife of the landowner makes sense. Another quote, he knew that death would come without notice, but death is but a seed when the people are behind you, end quote. So this one speaks about Padre Gaspar in uh, Nicaragua, but also could speak very well to Oscar Romero, to the Uca martyrs. This idea that the prophet knows that death is coming, but when the prophet is speaking on behalf of the oppressed and the prophet lives the life of the poor and of the oppressed, their death is but a seed that gives birth to a deeper commitment in the church to the cause of the poor. So the theological revolution of liberation happens in ecclesial-based communities. It happens in professors' offices. It happens in the good work of sisters, brothers, and priests. And it happens in the song of musicians. So I think the question that this part of the book poses to us is what is our role in the liberationist movement? Where do we fit in? Is it joining a ecclesial-based community or the social justice ministry at our local church? Is it doing more study into liberation theology? Maybe doing writing? Is it doing pastoral ministry? Is it doing community organizing? What is our role? Is it writing a song? I want to end each episode with a prayer. So I would invite you to uh, pray with me a prayer that I wrote a few weeks ago for the anniversary of the martyrdom of Ignacio Eacaria and his companions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God of justice, executed by the Roman Empire in the first century. God of justice, executed by the American Empire in the 20th century. Pierced by Roman nails, shot by American bullets, who moves prophets to denounce evil and announce visions of righteousness, who invites us to beat swords into plowshares and no longer train for war, who casts down the mighty and lifts up the poor and lifted up our brothers, my Jesuit brothers, Ignacio, Amando, Joaquin, Ignacio, Segundo, and Juan Ramon, who lived in our sisters, Selena and Elba who suffered and died with them, and who will rise with them on the last day, liberate the oppressed, overturn the tables of greed and power, and reign on earth as you do in heaven. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much for joining this first episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Please do send me any reflections you might have, uh, anything that would be helpful for making it better. Again, this is kind of my first experience doing this, and so any feedback you have would be extraordinarily helpful. On the next episode, we're going to continue our discussion of Roberto Oliveros' The History of Liberation Theology. We kind of made it through a significant chunk of that text today, but we'll continue along those lines next time. So I look forward to exploring that with you. Until then, may God bless you. Mm -hmm.